Father God, Father, greatly are you to be praised and greatly are you to be thanked. Lord, we thank you for your sustaining love, mercy, and grace throughout this week that has kept us safe, that has kept us um, in the faith, that has kept us with you. Uh, Thank you for delivering us from temptations. Thank you for delivering us from our trials. Dear Lord, we just ask that uh, you would forgive us for where we've gone astray, you would forgive us where we've gone wrong, uh, that you would break our hearts over our sin, but of course that you would restore us, knowing that even if when we do sin, we have an advocate with you who is your son. Uh, and the other paraclete we have is, is, of course, your spirit, Lord. And we ask for his help and his guidance tonight as we go into your word. We ask these things in the name of thy son, who is greatly beloved. Amen. want to uh, invite you, if you have your copy of God's word, Uh, to turn with me to the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 15. Now, my Sunday school students who are in here should know possibly where we're going to be going, which means they should know this stuff really well, Uh, which means they're going to do well on the test that may or may not be coming. But uh, I just really want to focus on two verses specifically, and that is verses 12 and 13. I'm going to read them to you now. These are the words of Jesus Christ, your Creator, your Lord, and your Savior. He says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, something that has repeatedly amazed me, has repeatedly encouraged me, has repeatedly thrilled me um, about the Christian life, and especially uh, being a part of a local church, is the spiritual reality of the amazing amount of love. And, and, and I want you to understand that these next words that I'm going to be saying are genuine. Uh, this is not a falsehood. This is just not to color up the sermon. These are true words. Something that has continually amazed me about living the Christian life and being a part of a local church is the amazing amount of love that God has given me for my brothers and sisters. And that is, of course, you all. Now, the simple reason, why would I say that that is something that amazes me? Um, I mean, we spend so much time, uh, we have at least three services about every week, and we have different times in between. You you would expect that if we were going to spend so much time together, we might like each other. But, you know, it's not something that I, you know, as, as a younger man ever really understood or expected, and, 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 I, and I really think that wherever I have experienced in any other form, uh, that's because the love between us, and when I use that word us, I'm cl- including all of us together in one group, the love between us is not the same kind of love that you have for your friends. And it's not the same kind of love that even you have for your blood family members. 
because this love that we have together comes by the Spirit of God. As a matter of fact, if you read the Apostle John's first epistle, uh, really, if I was smart, I would preach on this topic from that epistle because he talks about loving one another so much. And, and the reason he does that is because the chief number one evidence that the Apostle John uses as a test to see whether or not we are in the faith is that we, you know, do what? It's that we love one another. That's the number one test. You see, if, if you were to ask the Apostle John, um, hey, there is a, this person and, and they're in our church, but they just, they just don't really get along with anyone else. They, 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 just, they don't seem to love uh, everyone else the way that, that we love each other. The Apostle John would say about that person, that's a false convert. He would say that is not a true Christian. Because the way that you know if someone has the love, the love of God in them, and God is love, the way that you know if someone has the love of God in them is that they love God's people. This is very important. It's very, very important. And, and the other thing I will say is the, the love that we share together is not something that we, we experience in any other form, not only just because of the reality that it is a spiritual love, I get that, but I think it is God's particular intention to give us this, because on the one hand it is a commandment. On the one hand it is a commandment, the words of Jesus here, he says this is my commandment that I give to you, so it is a commandment, but at the very same time it is also a gift. Right? It's like the Sabbath. Jesus said about the Sabbath that Man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. So God can give us commands in his word that are for our blessing and are for our benefit. And I think that's what we have in the local Christian church. It is a sweet thing, a very, very sweet thing to be a part of a fellowship. And, 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 and I really think that we have a strong fellowship here at Lakeview Baptist Church. I really do. I really, really do. But that does not mean that time and time again we need to focus our attention uh, upon these very, very important things. And so, of course, as already mentioned, uh, we are going to be looking at John chapter 15. Now, I've been, as some of you know, I've been teaching through the Gospel of John for about two and a half years now. This is as far as we've gotten and so before we uh, begin looking at our specific verse, I'm not going to try to repeat everything that I normally do, but I am going to need to give you some context. Uh, John chapter 15, you know John chapter 15, you love John chapter 15. It's the famous place in the gospel where we get Jesus' illustration or Jesus' parable of the vine. Uh, he says in verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Now, as two of you in here should know, there is some really fascinating stuff behind that language um, that is going to help us and is going to be important to us. Now, diligent students of God's Word may recall certain passages in the Old Testament where God refers to Israel as the vine which He has planted. 
Now, the consistent theme behind that language as it is used in the Hebrew Scriptures is that, well, think about it. What is the reason that a man plants grapevines? Uh, he does it so that he can grow grapes. Uh, he has the specific intention in planting a vine that the vine would bear fruit. That's what the vine is supposed to do. You can't really use a vine for uh, firewood or you can't use it for lumber. It's, it's just basically worthless and it, it's, it becomes garbage if it's not bearing fruit. And, and I think Ezekiel chapter 15 off the top of my head is a great place to look at something like that. Jesus talks about that, of course, in this chapter. But so the, the point that I'm trying to get to with that is that speaking about his covenant people in the Old Testament, God refers to them as a vine with the intention that they would bear fruit. That's why you plant a vine. Now, anyone who has ever glanced at, uh, been under the same roof as a copy of the Old Testament knows that time and time again, Israel did not bear the fruit that God was intending them to bear. Uh, repeatedly and repeatedly, God has to uh, bring judgment upon the covenant people and different things like that because they continually fall short of the standard to which God had called them. And so you read the prophets, and God, he chastises the nation of Israel for yielding wild grapes or for yielding no fruit at all. Now, we of course know that it is not like God's plans or his intentions for Israel had failed. For the, His plans and intention for the covenant people of Israel was that through them, his son, the Mashiach, the Messiah, would come into the world. And that his name would be Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. He was going to establish his kingdom, not just in one nation in the Middle East, but that he was going to establish his rule throughout the entirety of the earth. This is something that began about 2,000 years ago, and Jesus Christ is still accomplishing his great work to this day. And so it is with all of that background in mind, Israel is the vine that uh, yields wild grapes, it yields no fruit at all. Jesus comes and what does he say? He says, I am the true vine. That is why when he is talking to the, the scribes and the Pharisees, he can say things like, if you knew Moses, if, if you knew the scriptures, you would believe in me. Moses wrote about me. That, that's what your, the scriptures, the scrolls that you have in the synagogue those are talking to you about me. They're supposed to point you to me. If you know the Word of God, you will know the Son of God. And that's a beautiful thing about God's Word. Jesus comes. He's the true vine. He is the, the vine which Israel only foreshadowed. He actually, the, those who abide in Him, Jesus says, they actually do bear fruit. And as a matter of fact, Jesus says, if you do not bear fruit, what? The Father takes you and he, and he throws you to be burned away. Now, some people say that means that someone lost their salvation. No, because God doesn't save someone and then change his mind. That person was never saved to begin with. They're a false convert, and they, they never truly did abide in the vine. Now, why is it that Jesus can say things like, 
if you love me, you will keep my commandments, or whoever abides in me will bear fruit. The reason Jesus can make those promises is because in the new covenant, the age in which you and I live, believers, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. We are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and it is his role in our lives to sanctify us and to personally help us grow and to please God and, and to bear the kind of fruit God would have us bear. In the Old Covenant, the, the law of God was written upon hearts or, or on, on tablets of stone. Now it is written upon your heart in such a way that you freely desire, you <clears throat> freely long to please your God. Now, so Jesus, he is conti- he, in John chapter 15 with the vine illustration, he is continually talking about the importance of bearing fruit. And so you ask the question, well, what kind of fruit does God want his people to bear? Well, he tells you in verse 12. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, this verse, what it does is it immediately calls to mind something that we read back in chapter 13, uh, verse 34, when Jesus told us, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. We see that, uh, yet again, how important, how premier, how primary it is as a Christian virtue, as a Christian principle, that the brethren love one another. Why does that need to be emphasized? Well, because I think it's something that is lost in a lot of modern Christianity. Um, And something that also needs to be mentioned, throughout the New Testament, there is a repeated emphasis upon loving the brethren in such a way that that becomes the primary focus of our love. You say, well, the Bible says we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Yes, it does. But Paul says in Galatians 6.10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, this may not be popular, but I'll say it because it's right here in the scriptures. We are supposed to love each other more than we love people out there. We are supposed to love each other more than our friends, our co-workers, our families, etc., etc. The primary focus of Christians' love is to be first to God, but then to other Christians. That is God's intention for us. Jesus talks about the judgment day, and, and, and he talks about those who, when I, when I was in prison, you came to see about me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink and all these different things. And he says, on that day, people will say, well, Master, when did we ever see you hungry and fed you? When did we ever see you thirsty and gave you drink? When did we ever see you in prison and come and visit you? And what does Jesus say? He says, truly, I say to you, what you do to the least of these, my brothers... You have done unto me. Notice that phrase there. The least of these, my brothers. Christ Jesus, our Lord, wants us to love each other very specifically. Think about it like this. 
Now remember, this chapter, chapter 15, begins with Jesus saying, I am the true vine. We, we've briefly gone over, we don't have that much time, unfortunately, to get into all of those different passages, but we've talked about the Old Testament background of that language, God's covenant people in the Old Testament were described as a vine chosen and planted by the Lord. Now, we as Christians in the New Covenant are connected to, we abide in the true vine, the much better vine, the much superior vine who is Jesus Christ. So he says, I am the true vine. The New Covenant is enacted on better promises than the old but we are still a covenant people. We are still a covenant people. 1 Peter chapter, one, ver, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once... You were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, in our very American, very individualistic, very Western minds, the natural tendency is for us to read a verse like that in First Peter and go, well, that, that, that's amazing. How, how, how wonderful. I am chosen. I am a royal priest. I am in a holy nation. I am a person for his own possession. And, and we think about what it means for us individually and specifically. Now, you know, you know, to say those things, it's like it's absolutely true, but it's also wrong at the same time. And what do I mean by that? Well, obviously, and I will defend this, in, you know, to, to my dying breath, obviously, God's salvation for us is very, very specific, very, very personal in nature. Our individual walks with the Lord, our individual faith is something that is very, uh, very, very important uh, and, and should be important to us as Baptists, but th it would be wrong to acknowledge how important our personal faith is and then neglect the reality that God has called us into a body of people who are of like-minded faith. You see, you know, what Peter's talking about here is he says that we, all of us as Christians, we are joined together in one chosen race. So the, it's, that's multiple of us, but it's one race. Uh, I mean, that's why Paul can use a language like there's neither Jew nor Greek. We're all one in Christ. We are one chosen race. We are one royal priesthood. We are one holy nation. All of us together are a people for God's own possession. And he even Peter even makes it a point to emphasize the fact that prior to our salvation, we were once not a people, but now we are God's people. Now, what's the reason that I would uh, go to uh, look at a text like that? Well, well look at the imagery that, that he uses there about a, a race, a nation, a priesthood. What kind of imagery does that call to your mind? Well, that's very, very, those, those are all promises that under the old covenant applied to the nation of Israel. Peter takes those same exact titles and he applies them to the Christian 
church who is spiritual Israel. Paul says, not all who are of Israel are Israel, Romans chapter 9. Point is that if you are going to claim to uh, take a part and, and, and abide in Jesus Christ, that means that automatically you are connected not only to Christ, which is a blessing beyond description, but you are also connected to the other people that Jesus died for. You're also connected to the other people whom God has saved. You are also connected to the other people who have believed on the name of Christ Jesus for their eternal salvation. That's, it comes with it. You, you don't have the option to say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, if you don't love the brothers. Why? Because if you're going to say that you're a follower of Jesus, don't followers follow their leaders? And guess what? Jesus loves the church. If you do not love the church, you are not following your leader. It's very, very, very simple. So, there, there, you know, there's a lot of talk these days, and, it, and it's important that we think about things like our personal walks or our personal journeys and these different things. All of that stuff, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying that is important. But what I'm, I'm putting a footnote there and saying we can't then neglect the fact that not only am I supposed to, you know, be responsible for myself, but I, I have a responsibility to love Guy Schuler. I, I have a responsibility to love Michelle there and, and, and Brother Bill and all of you. I, I have a responsibility to put their needs before mine, to put their desires before mine. I have a responsibility to make sacrifices for them. I don't, I don't have an option. As a, as a Christian man, those are my duties. Those are my responsibilities. And it's, and it's, and it's vice versa. It's vice versa. Now, We are one covenant people. The necessary implication is that there should be unity. Right? One people. Not, you know, Bill and I were just talking before the service. He says, you know, Logan, I've been in churches before where you see that line down the pews. Yeah, that was the Mason-Dixon line. That, that's not God's intention for the church. It is human tendency and it is our fleshly nature to create categories, to create subdivisions, and, and we carve out, well, the people who, you know, God saved out of alcoholism, let's tell them that they need to call themselves alcoholics for the rest of their lives, and we carve them out, and we put them in this square, and maybe people who have recovered from a heroin addiction, they go over here. Someone who is saved out of some sort of sexual sin, they go here. Those of us who were raised in Christian families, we can get this circle right here. It's like, hold on a second, what are you doing? It's not how it is. It's not how it's supposed to be. You can't create this, these categories where you have these people over here and, and you know, us over here, if, 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 you, if you understand what I'm saying. That, that just cannot be. And so when Jesus talks about abiding in him and, and, and those who abide in him bear true fruit, what is, he, what is the specific fruit that he, that he emphasizes? He says, this is my commandment, not my suggestion, not, not you know, this is a general regulation or it's a guideline or it's, it's a nice thing that we like to have, you know, a Bible verse like that on our wall somewhere. No, 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 no. You're sovereign. 
is giving you a command. Your sovereign's command is that you love one another. Now, how do we define love? Because the secular world defines love in a very different way than we do, in a very different way than the scriptures do. So if we want to know what love is, well, God is love. I think God gets to define love. So let's keep reading. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus points to himself and makes himself the ultimate standard of what true love amongst the brethren is supposed to look like. Verse 13, he says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, that has to be one of the most mesmerizingly spectacular things you've ever read. Um, I think we're allowed to just appreciate the beauty of God's Word. Um, it, it is interesting to note that at the time Jesus said these words, the disciples wouldn't really have understood them. It would only be after the fact, as the Spirit brings uh, these things to their remembrance as they reflect upon their Lord's teaching, that they would fully understand the, the impact of these words. This, I think, would have, you know, blown them away. You know, thinking about, you know, you, know, you think about the Apostle John, and I, I spent a lot of time thinking about John because two and a half years in this book. But, but I think a lot about John, and I think about him writing these things in, in the latter years of his life and him referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's like, you know, what... what it's, for, it's things like that that Jesus said to him that I think had a, a very special connection in the man's heart. Now, we don't want to forget that the specific intention that Jesus has in this verse is to, is to demonstrate what love amongst the brethren ought to look like. But before we can apply it in that way, well, we need to just let's talk about the, the phrase itself uh, for a moment. And, of course, we lack the time and I lack the ability to really like get to the bottom of it all. But, you know, so let's just, we are going to depend upon the spirit of truth to help us. Jesus identifies as the greatest form of love laying down one's life for his friends. As far as the meaning of Christ call, calling us friends, think about it like this. Jesus has the ability to call you to choose you to become his friend you do not necessarily have the right to do the same it's not it's not a two-way street um we, we, so he calls us friends and and think about that that also communicates an intimate very very personal connection such like abiding in him is supposed to mean well we plainly recognize that when jesus speaks of laying down his life the specific thing in view is is what it's his work on the cross uh, remember verse 12, Jesus says, as I have loved you. Uh, the fact of the matter is that when Jesus said these words, there were only hours at this point until he was going to be going to the cross and be the sin bearer for his people. Just two or three chapters earlier, his betrayer had gone out. Uh, and that is when he says these things. For the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created, who was eternally in the bosom of the Father, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Such condescension, such humility was never known and never has been known since. And yet this is what Jesus is preparing to do. This is what our beloved Savior is, do, is preparing to do for us in His mercy. He made Himself a servant on my part and on your part. We should think about that. By God's grace, it should blow us away. For you were once lost. More than lost, actually, Romans 1 says that you were a hater of God. You weren't neutral. You weren't neutral. You weren't seeking. You hated him. Now, that hatred is expressed in different ways, but that's just simply what the, the text of Scripture says. You cared not for his law. You did not care about his word. You were in slavery. You were enslaved to your flesh. You were in bondage to your sin. There, there were truly few creatures on earth more repulsive. But what does Jesus do? He goes so far as to place himself beneath you. Yes, you, even you. All of us. Placing himself beneath you, he who knew no sin being made sin, so that in him we would become the righteousness of God, suffering under the wrath of his beloved Father, and for what? So that every single sin of every single person who believes in him, not in their own works, not in their own righteousness, but upon his death alone, each and every one of their sins down to the, the last very drags at the bottom would be forgiven in total. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, that's, that's what the great high priest, that's what Jesus does on the cross for us. Now, that, and, and of course, time is my greatest enemy, but that, beloved, that's what he did for us. That is what we are supposed to do for each other. What does that mean? Well, that means suffering for others. That means you know, Paul in Philippians chapter 2 uses the language, counting others more worthy than yourselves. There's to be a submissiveness upon our parts for everyone else. You know, it's like, and, and that, that, that expresses itself in so many different ways, but, but, but what it comes down to is this. If you're a Christian, and I, I don't really know a whole lot, and so when people ask me for advice, I tend to tell them the same thing over and over again. And I'm thinking about one individual right now who I've been discipling for quite some time now. And, and I say just the same things to them all the time. What I continually tell this young man is, listen to me. Your first, your number one priority is God. Jesus, when he's talking about, you know, being stressed about all these different things in your life, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. So, well, you're worried because you don't have this, you're worried about this, forget it. 
Seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ will take care of the rest of that. So it's like priority number one, obey God, honor God, love God. Well, how exactly do we love God? Well, we express our love for God as we love one another. It means putting, you know, the things that I care about, those, those can wait. Well, what are the, the needs? How can I be a, a servant to the brethren? And, and I just, there, there's so many things I want to say, and I can't get it straight with the amount of time we have. But, but just let me tell you something right now. There is a, an old saying, I don't know who said it, but I, I, I hope I never meet him because I hate this saying. And it's, you know, forgive, but don't forget. Well, that's not in my Bible. Um, guess what? We are a church body of covenant people, and there are going to be times when I upset you. There, now, sometimes I know that I'm upsetting you as I say it, but there are going to be times, that's because I'm preaching, but you know, there are going to be times where we hurt each other, where we upset one another, where there's conflict, and what is the scriptural remedy? It says love covers a multitude of sins. Not that we harbor grudges, not that we think, oh, you know, that guy over there, well, what'd he do to you? Well, three or four years ago, he, you know, I don't remember all the details, but mmm, and it's like, that's what, and, and that, that can never be. So, as I leave in a timely manner, my brother Bill is going to come and, and pray for us all. Thank you.